Francis, and welcome to Seattle University. We have uh, a great uh, collection and, and group here of uh, people here. This is family weekend, actually, for us at Seattle U. Uh, but we're happy to be uh, having the families of our students join us, our students here today. Uh, welcome to you. Uh, there is a production going on at Seattle Rep of A Thousand Splendid Sons, and we're happy to also have uh, the uh, Seattle Rep people with us here today, many people from Seattle Repertory Theater and the general community. Welcome everyone, please, to Seattle University. It's our pleasure and honor to have you here today. Uh, I want to thank us, many folks who helped this come together. First, Nicole Piasecki, without whom we wouldn't be having this today. Our chair of our board of trustees called and said, hey, you know what we might be able to do? And here we are. Now, to get from that to this, uh, we have to thank the Family Weekend people, uh, our many student and other volunteers who you met earlier today. Uh, and we have to have at least one person who knows how to run one of these all the way. And that was our MARCOM director, Karen Bystrom. So I have to have a special thank you to Karen Bystrom for putting all this together. Um, we're streaming this live via Facebook. I also want to let you know that KUOW is recording this event tonight, uh, this afternoon, uh, for a later presentation on KUOW. Um, and uh, we have uh, handed out, I guess, cards. Uh, if you have questions, please fill out a question on that card. Our volunteers will pick them up and we'll bring them up for the panelists. Uh, later, uh, later in the interview portion here. So uh, as you think of a question, write it down, fill it out, get it ready, and, and our uh, volunteers will help pick those questions up and we'll get to as many of those as we can. I want to mention one other thing real quickly. Seattle University, as a university, is about the growth and extension of knowledge and creativity at the highest levels of human capacity. Those are foundational purposes of a university, but at Seattle University, we're a university deeply based in our own values, along with academic excellence of diversity, faith, justice, leadership, and care for the individual. And as this today is about very much about hope, I also want to recognize a difficulty and tragedy this morning in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, and the loss of lives there. So uh, I want to take a moment now and ask you just to take a moment of silence in your own tradition to think about and remember um, the victims and their families, uh, our, our uh, brethren in humanity, um, as they are struggling today uh, in hope. So we'll just take just a moment. Thank you very much. So it is now my, my great pleasure to introduce uh, our panelists and our uh, interviewer. Uh, it's uh, first and foremost I will mention uh, Khaled Hosseini, the renowned author of The Kite Runner and A Thousand Splendid Sons, a play version of which is playing right now at Seattle Repertory Theater. Uh, he also is author of In the Mountain Echoes and most recently Sea Prayer. Uh, joining him for this conversation is Razia John. She's the founder of Razia's Ray of Hope Foundation, which has empowered Afghan girls in education for the past 10 years. Finally, I'd like to recognize the Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Dr. Sonora Ja, who herself is a, an award-winning novelist, essayist, and professor, professor of journalism here at Seattle University. Please join me in welcoming uh, our speaker.
Thank you, David, and uh, welcome. Can everyone hear me? Okay, good. Uh, welcome, everyone, and a huge welcome to Khaled and Razia Jan again. Uh, welcome to Seattle. Uh, the fog cleared for you, so <laughs> that's a really rare and wonderful thing. Um, so before uh, uh, we get into a deeper conversation, I just wanted to say, just listening to the two of you talk and um, it, the, the sounds of home, the sounds of South Asia have been coming up for me. And so if I get a little emotional this morning, <laughs> it's because of that. So, um, so it was really well-timed that you came for uh, Razia's uh, event. And we also have at the Seattle Repertory Theater this amazing production of uh, um, uh, A Thousand Splendid Suns. So if you haven't seen it, you should go see it. And um, I watched it about a couple of weekends ago. and. Um, you know, as I was sitting in the audience, we were talking about how it's a difficult uh, play to watch. Um, but I saw that the audience was really just leaning in in the story of two women and their uh, secrets and their power and all the atrocities that they are facing. And I, I, I couldn't help but think of how incredibly you have written uh, these, these lives of two women. And usually male authors don't do a good job of that. You know? <laughs> so how do you do it? <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here um, with all of you and especially here to support thank my you. dear friend, Razia John. Um, okay. I, <laughs> so there, there was like this article I think one time that said, uh, was talking about this issue you're talking about, and they were saying, oh, he must have a special understanding of women or something, which like gave my wife an eye roll that's still going. <laughs> um, so I have no uh, insight more than any other of the XYs in the room. But what I will say uh, is that um, um, that book was born out of a trip that I took to Afghanistan, my first trip back. Uh, since 1976, and I, which was when I left. I went in 2003, I spent uh, almost two weeks there. And it was really just to reconnect with the country and see what's going on. I had an enormous desire to go back. And I learned so much um, from the human standpoint about what had been going on with girls and women in Afghanistan that I knew from the news. But to actually walk the streets of Kabul, and to talk to people, and to talk to women and girls, and to hear the stories of all the struggle that they went through, not only during the Taliban, but in some ways even worse during the four years of the Mujahideen civil war. Um, it gave me such a deeper understanding of what happened with those women um, in Afghanistan. And so when I returned home, about a year after that, I decided to write a book um, about that story of women in Afghanistan because the kite runner was set in the world of men, really. Um, and the collective voices of all those women came back and I narrowed down on these two characters whom I really didn't know at first. And with every draft that I spent with Laila and Mariam, every time I kept, I kept going back, I felt like I knew them better. I didn't know women, but I knew those two women quite well. And by the third or fourth draft, they felt like part of my life. I knew them both really well. Um, I cared for them very deeply. And so for those two women, I felt like I could tell their story truthfully because they felt very real to me. And I had seen versions of them on the streets of Kabul 
uh, not only in my childhood, but also in that trip back. Thank you, and thank you for writing those characters. They're quite memorable. Um, so, uh, Razia Jan, I uh, was looking at your website and I was looking at you know, the work that you're doing, as you mentioned, with the Afghan girls and women, and I was really struck by this, uh, this uh, thing that you said about celebrate diplomas, not dowries. Correct. And I, I want you to talk about that a little bit. I think it's just that, uh, as you know, in the world or anywhere, in, if you, um, I think, uh, in Afghanistan, what had happened is during these 30, 40 years of war that um, the security of a girl was if she was married somewhere and, and then, um, and of course the parents were paid for it. And that made it so difficult for anybody to realize that really girls' um, life matter. And, and what I did is that uh, although it's a small, Thing, but the school that I have uh, developed, and it's 10 years, and, and what we have done is that we have postponed the marriages of these girls, and we have negotiated with the in-laws, and, and so I have 15 girls that are married, and, uh, and my school is the only school that allows married girls to go to school. Any governmental school, they will uh, throw the girls out if they are engaged or if they are married. And that is such a privilege for my girls to stay in school for these, you know, they come and they are married seven-year-old girl uh, seven, in seventh grade and the husband is 29 years old and he's an engineer or whatever he is and he's moved to that village and he says, this girl is 13 years old, what should I do with him? how much I can play with him, with her. And, and please help me, I want her to get education. She was in seventh grade. And so she, he's supporting her. In the evening he sits with her and, and does her homework. And she graduated and she said, I can't have a child till I graduate. You know, so it is something that they are learning and we are helping. And education is the only way that is a way for a woman to really go forward. And we are making it possible how small it is. You know, we started with 100 girls and nobody wanted these girls to go to school. And right now I have 640 girls that are going to school. And, and this is our fourth year of graduation. First year we had seven girls, second year we had 15, third year last year we had 18, and this year we have 27 girls who are graduating. And what we did is that the first year the girls that graduated from our school, they asked me, they said, Razia Jan, 12th grade is nothing, what should I do? And I said, well, I'll build you a college. Wow. And I did, wow. because they were not allowed to leave their community. So we built this college for them, and they are doing midwifery program. We have 20 girls that are going to graduate this year in March. And these girls were so amazingly well qualified that the Ministry of Health has opened a clinic in the village for them to really take care of these women that 
you know, the death rate of women dying is 46%. And the child living is, I think, six months. So to, to have these girls trained and in that village, and there are seven villages around that area. So this is something, it is very small. But for us to, for them to think really, get a diploma and not a dowry, don't worry about, you know, and we are helping these girls that tomorrow they'll help their community and their parents and their siblings. And that's my hope. Mm -hmm. And how small this project is, we are focused on it, and we want these girls to really get somewhere. And we have seven girls that are going to American University, which is unheard of. And the language they have to speak and write and read is only English. If they speak in Dari, they are fine 50 Afghani, which is a dollar a word. And they don't speak, or they speak in English. And, and we have 13 girls that want to go now to American University. So we are opening, it's a small thing, but I can see the difference. I'm one person, and I think with the help of Khalidjan, I couldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. And this is not today that he's sitting next to me. He started, he helped me to build the school. Literally, I asked him with the email that come, you want the, you know, his book, The Kite Runner. First page is, it's about his children, a daughter and a son. And then it's about children of Afghanistan that he mentioned they are his sight, eyesight. And I wrote to him and I said, you said children of Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> and I need help to build a school. I can't do it. And, and he said, I'll come. And we raised $70,000 in one day. And I cooked for, cook for 300 people Afghani food, you know. <laughs> I just, and he, he was there. And then two years later, I went back and forth to Afghanistan, and 70,000 was not enough. I, he wrote another book. <laughs> I called him again, and he came back, and we raised another 60,000. And then I could go and build the school. You know, it's something that without him, without his thinking, without his generosity, we couldn't do it. Until today, he's helping us whenever he can. So I'm so thankful and so grateful for your efforts, for your thinking about the country that needs so much help. Oh, you're very nice. Um, you, <laughs> you truly, uh, I think, uh, very kindly overplay my role, but, you know, I show up and, um, and, you know, be charming for an hour and, you know, people write checks or whatever, but you're the one in the middle of winter uh, sitting in a village talking to these bearded old guys uh, who've never had a female member in their history of their families, you know, go to school, and you've gotten to, you know, Razia John has talked to these people ad nauseum and eventually gotten 
the village elders to see that if your girls go to school, it's good for you too. It's good for your village. It's an investment in the future of your own community. So, um, you know, I don't want this to be a love fest, but I have enormous admiration for Razia John. And we're actually, I, I knew about you because my sister-in-law called me, my brother's wife called me and uh, said that I have a family a relative of mine who's trying to build a school in Afghanistan. Her name is Razia John. And, uh, you know, she's trying to reach you. And, you know, she, <laughs> she needs help. And so that's, that's sort of where our, our friendship began. Yeah. That's lovely. And I know that we were talking backstage about how he'll just have to keep writing books so that Absolutely. we can do this. Right. Yeah. And you guys have to buy it. Right. <laughs> so we can, we can continue this mission. Yeah, that's a lovely partnership. Um, you know, we had the opposite in our household for your girls. Every time they say an English word, yeah. the Farsi word, they have to pay 50 Afghanis <laughs> or a dollar. When we moved to the States, my dad had a jar on the table, and every time we said an English word, we had to drop a quarter, because they were worried we were going to lose our Farsi. <laughs> so we, we had the reverse paying process. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the magical thing about language is that we can keep learning, and we, sure. you know, we can add sure. more and more. It's lovely to be bilingual. Sure. Um, so, uh, uh, Khalid, you uh, are an ambassador with the UNHCR, and you were, you were in Lebanon uh, fairly recently, and uh, you met Syrian refugees there. What, what did you see there that we should know about? What moved you there? No, I, I've worked with the UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency, since 2006. It's a very natural role for me, given that I'm from Afghanistan, which was, up until Syria uh, took over, was the largest refugee-producing country in the world. Sadly, now it's Syria. Um, and so I've gone on a number of missions with the UN, uh, meeting with refugees in camps and in cities and understanding their issues. Um, so I've been a bunch of places around the world. Um, this year, uh, my son and I went to Lebanon with, on a mission with the UN, and I met with refugees there. It's stunning um, because the population of Syrian refugees in Lebanon has grown to over one million. Um, if you walk in the streets of Lebanon, one out of every six people you see come across on the street will be a Syrian refugee. Um, for that, a small country like Lebanon has a lot to teach us um, and deserves enormous gratitude. And much more than that, they deserve the assistance of the international community to take care of these millions of vulnerable people, of this million vulnerable people. Um, in Lebanon, um, a Syrian refugee, 70% of them live on less than $4 a day. Um, the vast majority of them are really struggling for work. A lot of their children aren't going to school, so there's a threat of an entire lost Syrian generation. Um, what work refugees can find is janitorial, it's agricultural or construction. Those are the only three fields in which they're allowed to work. Um, work is temporary, it's rare, and often exposes the refugee to exploitation by the employer. The refugees that I met lived in converted chicken ranches, they lived in abandoned warehouses, and unforgettably, they, on over a thousand refugees that I met lived in this halfway built, never completed, shopping mall um, uh, that's open, and over a 1,000 people live there and pay exorbitant rents in this dilapidated 
a broken down building where there's no sanitation. It smells like a sewer and they pay rent uh, uh, to, to live there. So life is very hard. If you get sick as a refugee, like really sick, like you develop cancer uh, in Lebanon, uh, healthcare there is prohibitively expensive even for many local Lebanese. So if you're a Syrian refugee that has cancer, let's say needs chemotherapy, some of the people that I came across had actually made the choice to go back to Syria in the middle of the war to get chemotherapy. And then if they have enough strength to return back to Lebanon after they've had chemo, provided they're not shot inside Syria. A lot of families that I met were splintered and broken apart because some members had left uh, to try to get a better life in Europe. I met a little boy who'd seen his father's face only on the screen of an iPhone because he was born after his father paid smugglers and crossed the Mediterranean and went to Europe. Life as a refugee there is punishing and it's really hard. And the main thing that I drew from it, one of the main things personally, was that if I was in their spot and if I was a father who couldn't provide for his children, whose children weren't going to school and didn't have a viable future, I too you know, might have paid smugglers and get on a rubber boat make my way to Europe. I hope I'll get there and hope I can secure a better future for my family. And in a way, I feel like emotionally you did make that journey um, because in this book, Sea uh, Prayer, you've written from the point of view of a father to a son who's making that journey. And I think you were moved by that picture that all of us were moved by of the boy, little boy whose body washed up on the beach in Turkey. And um, it, it's such a beautiful, it's, it's, a, it's poetry as well as a prayer, isn't it? Um, so would you read for us a little bit? Sure. From there? So this is, um, um, the setup here is that um, is a father, a Syrian father and his small boy. It's nighttime and they're sitting on a beach uh, somewhere along with all other migrants and refugees and they're waiting for the boat, the, the rubber boat that will take them across the sea and hopefully uh, somewhere in Europe. Um, and so I'll begin in the middle here. The boy is sleeping and it's sort of a monologue from the father to his son. I've heard it said that we're the uninvited. We are the unwelcome and we should take our misfortune elsewhere. But I hear your mother's voice over the tide and she whispers in my ear, oh, but if they saw my darling, even half of what you have, if only they saw, they would say kind of things, surely. I look at your profile in the glow of this three-quarter moon, my boy. Your eyelashes like calligraphy, closed in guileless sleep. I said to you, hold my hand, nothing bad will happen. These are only words, the father's tricks. It slays your father, your faith in him. Because all I can think tonight is how deep the sea and how vast, how indifferent, how powerless I am to protect you from it. All I can do is pray. Pray that God steers the vessel true when the shores slip out of eyeshot and we are a fly speck in the heaving waters, pitching and tilting, easily swallowed. Because you are a precious cargo, my boy the most precious there ever was. I pray the sea knows this, inshallah. How I pray the sea knows this. 
And that's the end of it, right? Um, so thank you. So this was inspired by the drowning of, of a two-year-old, Alan Kurdi, whose body famously washed up uh, on a beach in September of 2015 uh, after he and his father, his mother, and his brother tried to cross the sea. His brother and mother died also. Only his father survived. When I saw that photograph, like millions of people, I was gutted as a father. And something about that photograph is very powerful is that he's lying face down. So you can't quite see his features, and it's very easy to project the face of somebody that you love on that body. And so I wrote the book really as to pay tribute to his family and also to the thousands of families before and after him who've attempted the same crossing of the sea and, and have gone missing or died at sea. This year alone, there have been 10 incidents uh, so far where 50 or more people have drowned trying to reach Europe. But I also hope this book is a tiny antidote to some of the anti-refugee and political rhetoric um, that we're witnessing, that refugees are coming to take Western jobs and they want to enjoy Western luxury and so on. Well, the truth is that nobody, no matter where they're from, nobody chooses voluntarily to leave their home, their root, their community, their friends, uh, their belongings, all the foundational structures of human life, and then take their family to the coast of Libya, knowing that along the way they could be shot, detained, extorted, sold into forced labor, um, and then put all their life savings in the hands of smugglers who are, have no regard for human life, whose entire business actually thrives on human misery, and then set out at sea, sometimes for days in pitch black, waves all around them, many of them can't swim, to get to Europe towards the most uncertain of futures. Nobody in their right mind would choose this for themselves, let alone for their children. And those who do, uh, uh, those unfortunate who, who've had to make these agonizing decisions and take these desperate journeys, deserve better from us, not walls and bands, but policies that are based on the principles of compassion and solidarity with their struggles. Thank you. And I think there's a very powerful word that you just use in that first line of the poem, the uninvited, you know, and it's just tragic to think of who's invited and who's not. And in the traditions that we come from, any guest is invited. Anyone that walks into your home is an invited guest, and there's no notion of the uninvited. So I, I really love that. Um, I, I know that you were really moved by this poetry as well, and you Absolutely. loved the book. Do you have something to say about it? I think it's just, you know, what he said about, um, uh, you know, people really don't want to leave uh, where they are born and where they are, they are you know, they have life. Um, and there has to be a reason for people to uproot themselves and, and, and really go to places that um, either they are unwanted or or the struggle that they go through. It's not easy uh, for people to leave their homes and, uh, and you know, and a lot of, um, you know, there have been a lot of uh, cases, not just this child, 
um, just that was captured. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people that are, are, you know, are missing or dead while trying to get somewhere to a better place or um, to survive the, you know, the, the hardship that they are facing in a country that they were. So I think it's something that um, it's going to be happening as the world turns around and, and are really what we have to do as a human being to have the compassion and love and, and see everybody the same as we are seen, you know. So that's something that we have to treat all human beings the same regardless of their color, creed, or religion, or anything. A human being is a human being. Thank you. Um. <laughs> and uh, Khaled, I read somewhere that uh, you said, you know, you've moved into poetry now, you know, from writing fiction, so. Uh, People call it a poem. I, I, it has a poetic feel to it, but I, right. I've it's, committed it's, crimes against the field of poetry, and I'm, <laughs> I'm done with that. <laughs> well, I doubt that. But, um, but uh, you, I read somewhere that you were inspired by Sufi poets, and especially that one of your favorite books is the Diwane um, Hafiz. And um, do you, is there something beautiful and lyrical from that that you carry with you, or something that you want to share with us? Well, it's not just me. It's all of us in Afghanistan. You know, it's, uh, there's, there's a, an association between Afghanistan and illiteracy uh, ever since the wars began. And that's very true. That's um, one of the challenges the country is facing. But even the illiterate in the distant villages in Afghanistan can recite you entire ghazals. Um, maybe the most beautiful, because poetry is the way the, the it's the way that people express themselves. It's in the people's soul from cradle to grave. And when I grew up, my parents had volumes and volumes of, of poetry around the house. Maybe the most vivid example of it is I went to, I don't know if I told you the story, Raza John, but I went to Kabul, the, was, it must have been 2010. And I went to this place called Darulamon. And Darulamon was a sort of the, the Versailles version uh, of in like a poor man's Versailles in, in Kabul. It was this beautiful palace that was built in the, in the 20s by a former Afghan king, and this gorgeous palace with gardens, and it was quite, quite impressive. Well, it w became sort of the, one of the centers of the war, and it was brutally and mercilessly shelled over years and years and years. So that it has become, in some way, I think a fitting metaphor for the country itself. Is that you look at it, there's this picture of fallen splendor. You have this beautiful palace that's now, you know, a death trap. It's just scorpions everywhere and beams hanging and rocks everywhere. And I took a tour of it. It's really amazing. But on those broken down walls and on these slabs of concrete laying everywhere is poetry. You know, some of it amateurish, but I, people saw wrote Rumi poems on the walls. Uh, and, and to me, that just, again, sort of demonstrated the depth to which poetry is, is connected with the Afghan soul. Mm -hmm. 
Do you get moved similarly? There are times when I'm driving home from work and it's got nothing to do with work, but, um, but I'm listening to some uh, Urdu poetry, Mirza Ghalib especially, and I'm so moved. There are tears streaming down my cheeks and I don't know why, you know. Do you find yourself too turning to poetry uh, from Afghanistan and Sufi poetry? Of course, poetry of course that you... you have to. Um, I think uh, all, it's very important in life to have that connection of literature with you, whether it's poetry in Dari or Pashto or English or, uh, I mean, this, 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 what he wrote is amazing. I cried for hours <laughs> reading this because it's so, it hits you. It's so much truth to it. And those poets that wrote all these things, they, it's their experience and what they went through. And what, I have amazing students that write poetry. I, I was shocked to hear, and, and you can see in their heart and in their wording the, the pain as a young person, as a young girl, that they are feeling about you know, the situation or their, what's going to be of them. And so it is something that I think you express yourself in, as a human being, either you read or you write, or I think that's a nature, a natural thing for human beings to do that. Thank you. We look forward to having one of your students here one day reading her poetry. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and uh, Khaled, uh, so you write about very difficult things, um, you know, uh, politics and um, just misery and hope and all of these things and and these are real stories too you know they're so founded in fact right and um, do you do you feel that literature especially uh, literary fiction helps us create I mean of course that's a you know there's a testament to your writing that people are so moved and are drawn to that story but do you feel like it creates this empathy in the world that across cultures that's one of the things that that we one way to create empathy. Well, I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll, spoiler alert, <laughs> yes. Um, I was a novelist, that's, I feel that very much, but I'm probably biased. But I, I feel that it's urgent, feels urgent to me, especially now, to have fiction in our lives. Um, at a time when there are world leaders talking about how not all persons have equal value, and who caricaturize and speak about the other in reductive ways. It feels like we need fiction now more than ever, in a way, in our homes, in our lives, for the sense of human community that fiction gives us. Um, because fiction nurtures us. You know, it nurtures our immutable connections as a species. You know, nothing opens the world to us the way literature does, especially I mean, the way fiction does. It's, it's, it allows us to, uh, to, to it, it widens our moral imagination. You know, it allows us to find ourselves in another person's life, to find solace in another person. Um, and so I, I, feel, I feel, especially in these times, it's really important to, to have fiction and, and the, the, there's a writer named um, Richard Flanagan um, uh, from Australia who said this beautifully. He said, in a world where the roads to new tyrannies is paved with the fear of others, great books show us that we're neither alone nor in the end that different. 
um, that what joins us is much more important than what divides us, and that the price of division is ever the obscenity of oppression. And I, I feel that very strongly. Um, so Afghanistan has just gone to the polls about a week ago, a week from today, I think, a week ago. Um, and apparently there are a number of women running uh, for election. I, I read about this 28-year-old uh, sure. woman who's running as well. Um, what, what do both of you, do you have some hope or do you not have any hope of what's to come? There was al al already violence around the election, so. <clears throat> well, you know, for the past 40 years we are living in violence. So that's not an issue, it is an issue, but I think it is something that we have to look forward and find ways to work within the system that we have. Um, as you know, we can't change many things, not in this country, not in any country. So what we have to do is, as a person, that we have to have hope. And if we don't have hope, then life is not worth a dime. Um, what we are concentrating, or I'm concentrating, is to make better life for these girls and hope. And, and maybe one of my students will be a president one day. So that's my hope. And um, I think, uh, I think we, we just have to, you know, in such, it's, it's something that I don't know how we are going to solve this. And that's not my area of solving. But within the community, uh, what I'm trying to do, the fathers that are ready to chop their daughters and put, it, put them in fire, I'm trying to change their mind, not to chop them, but let them become something that they want to. So the violence is there, but we have to work within the these communities, these families, and make it really possible for them to think that what we are doing is good for these girls. And I think what I had, the, the day I opened the school, or the uh, groundbreaking of the school, um, I was the only woman there standing, and there were 35 men standing, the Malik and the mayor and God knows who and whatever. And then, and then a guy comes running to me, and there was a poor sheep that they're going to slaughter because we are going to do the groundbreaking, which I was against, but they wanted, so I said, okay. And I'm standing there, and then a guy comes running to me, and we had a small yellow bulldozer. And the guy comes to me and says, so-and-so um, says, if you start this bulldozer, I'm going to lie down in front of this, and you have to run me over. And I, in front of those 35 men, I said, you come, lie down here, I'll run you over, I'll bury you here, and I'll put a flag and say, this bastard never wanted a girl's school. Wow. <laughs> and he never showed up. And he never showed up. And I think now it's 10 years when I speak to men, I always say no to them, but they, I think they, in their heart, they know that I'm the tough bulldozer, <laughs> and they have to run me over to, to find their way. So they do, they are against it, but then I work within the system, within their minds, and make them 
really possible to, to, to work this. I had a student that wanted so much after high school to become a nurse or to, for the midwifery. And she came crying and crying and she said, the 20, 19 girls are going, I'm not allowed. I told her, I said, well, tell me, what is your father's name? And she said, Hisamuddin. I said, do you have his number? He said, yes. I dialed the number and I called him. And he picks up and he's, oh, Miss Razia Jan, oh, Motarma, how are you? And I said, is your name Hisamuddin? He said, yes. I said, you know, my best cousin that I love more than anybody, his name is Hisamuddin. I'm so happy to know you. He said, really? I said, why the hell aren't you allowing your daughter <laughs> to, to, to do the midwife program? He said, no, no, miss. You are the mother. You do whatever you want to. And now she's going to graduate. So this is, you know, in all this mess that around the world and what's happening in that country, I'm trying to find a way to educate these girls. And I hope that one day they'll stand for themselves. It's been 10 years, hard 10 years, and we've worked so hard that I can't even tell you. It's 100% free for them. And we provide everything because they're so poor. And so we need your help. We need your help to continue this mission how small it is, it really doesn't matter, but it is making a difference. We have seven girls who are going to American University. We have 13 girls who want to go to American University. We have one girl who got full scholarship to a university in Istanbul for medical. And we have these girls that want to become something and we are opening this door for them. I think they are very hard. It, every step is a struggle. Every step is a war. But I think it's just that God has been with us. And through all these things, these men are not, not um, terrorists. Uh, these are people that are very conservative. And what they saw during the, you know, the Russian war, how their women were raped and killed and village was, villages were destroyed. So they are very scared of their women and they don't want them to be hurt. And we are opening these doors in a very kind of ways that hopefully these women will stand for themselves and become something and support the family and I think I can see this, because a man who is illiterate came to me and said that, you know, I used to go to 10 people when I got a letter from the county or somewhere. I couldn't <coughs> understand what it is. And one would read it and I would say, maybe he's not my cousin, he's telling me the wrong thing. And then I would go to somebody else and so. And then after 10 people I would, get the gist of what he said. But now, now I don't have to go anywhere. My daughter can read. 
she will tell me exactly what it is. You know, what I do the first day when a child comes to my school as a kindergarten, I tell the teacher, don't do anything. Make them write the father's name in English and Dari. They take the whole page and go run, Baba, Baba, I've read it. And the Baba's crying, oh God, I can't read, right? And my daughter, four-year-old, five-year-old can write my name. And he comes running to me and say, thank you. So that is the thing that we are trying to do. And there is a great success. We have been, you know, in a country like this, we are number one school. It's 100% free for these girls. And we are giving the best education to these girls. And I think slowly, slowly, it's going to, you know, these girls will go somewhere else and hopefully they will start something like this. I think it's like a fire where you start and where it goes. And in a Persian, of course, Khalidjan knows very well, uh, there's a saying, it says, Qatra Qatra Darya Mishavad. It says, each drop, when it drops and drops and drops, it makes a river. And this is what we are trying to do. And one day, I hope that we'll have ocean there in Afghanistan of these girls educated and taking care of the families and the country. Really, that's what we want to. And this is what our mission is. Because as I was growing, I had all the privilege. And then when I go back after 38 years, I see these girls that they don't, if I asked a man how many children you have, he will just say three boys. When he had eight daughters, he would not mention them. But now he's proudly mentioning them. And also, it's something that you said, dowry uh, and not whatever. <laughs> I forgot. Diplomas, but, not yeah, dowries. Yeah, so it's diplomas we are giving them. Yeah. And, and I think people are waiting because they see the benefit of education. I think the taste of education is something that nobody can take away from you. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a cousin, Mike, he was a governor, many places, very well-educated man. And 32 months, Zikriya, Aziz Zikriya, he was in jail. And all he did is, he sat in the evening with the other prisoners and he would read or recite from his mind or write on the wall something and they would you know, spend the night and then they would go to sleep and five o'clock in the morning he would hear a, a noise of a gunshot and then he would see somebody's prayer thing was in a corner and he knew he was gone. So every night for 32 months he thought that this is my last night. But his mind was working, and he helped the other prisoners in the war in, during that time in the prison, really, and, and work with them and make life a little better by poetry and by writing or reading. So that is what education can do. Nobody can take it away from you. They can take everything else. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm so glad that you've talked about this like rich uh, mix and you know, the diversity of hope, 
of uh, privilege. And then you also mentioned the, you know, that there's violence there and there's violence here. And we're seeing almost like election-related violence right now in the US. You know? And so we tend to think of certain parts of the world as uh, violent, ridden with violence, et cetera. And I'm curious, Khaled, in your, in your writing, you know, when we're writing about these complex homelands, um, sometimes, at least I struggle with, uh, you know, representing something that is hard and that is brutal, but also then the Western Oriental sort of gaze or toward, toward the home. And I wonder how you balance that and do you struggle with, clearly you do struggle with that and you arrive at something. Well, I, for me, um, I, I've um, <coughs> accepted that Look, my, I, I came to the U.S. in 1980. I've lived here 38 years. I only lived in Afghanistan for 11. And so those were my formative and really important 11 years. But in terms of just I'm, my experience is really largely living here. And so I know that when I write about war and violence and brutality and women's rights in Afghanistan, that I'm doing so through what Salman Rushdie calls us sort of the cracked mirror of the, of the, uh, of the exile. Um, and so I, I necessarily view the history of Afghanistan and the current events through the eye of somebody who's left a, a long time ago. Um, I, don't, I don't really write for any particular audience, whether it be uh, a Western audience with a sort of a, a you call the Orientalist view or what, what not. Um, I write for myself. I, I find that when I write my books, I write for an audience of one. And I, I, I descend into a mental bunker and I start to work. I shut out all the voices and the audiences and the people who have agendas or expectations or hopes, whatever it may be. You know, and I'm alone with those characters. And I'm in that world for six, seven hours or whatever and then I emerge from it, I go back to my normal life and I sink back into it. And I find that for me, it's the only way that I can really write um, honestly and authentically because anything outside of that becomes tainted with external factors like what you mentioned. So for me, it's a very personal and one-on-one and -on -one relationship. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, we have a question from, um, these are uh, international studies course on qualitative research methods. And they sent me a question in advance. They were very, very organized. So I'm gonna, <laughs> uh, on their behalf, I'm gonna send, uh, ask you this question. Uh, there are a number of us here in the audience who are students who want to make a difference in the world on a global level. What advice do you have for us about possible careers in aid, philanthropy, and foreign policy? What strategies do you rec recommend to avoid paternalistic approaches? Oh my God, I'm so ill-suited to answer this question. <laughs> so I'll, I'll give you a... <laughs> um, so I don't have any specific advice, but I will say something. In that I think what would be enormously helpful, and I say this to my kids as well, um, is to expand your idea of community. You know, a community can be you know, your street, or it could be your school, it could be your city here in Seattle, let's say. But it could be a lot, much more, you know, much, much more. Um, it's a cliche to say that we all live in this sort of interconnected global community, but it's actually really true. We really do. The world has changed. Um, 
and it's a complicated organism, this wider global community. It needs people who work with their minds and people who work with their hands and people, it needs the advice and the input and the wisdom of the older generation. But very importantly, it needs new blood and it needs fresh ideas from young people who are going into these fields because they're the change makers and the innovators of the future. So the only advice I would have is not a strategy, but I would say embrace it. You know, embrace becoming an organic part of that bigger community. You know, embrace facing the challenges of the world that you're about to inherit, be it overpopulation or hunger or displacement or climate change. And then use, you know, the privileges and the skills and the talents at your disposal and work towards solutions um, with a critical eye and an open and hopeful and, and curious heart. And that's, that's what I've told my kids. And that's probably the best advice I can give on the, on the issue. Great. Thank you. And I know that we are going to get some questions from the audience, but while they're bringing those up here, um, for those people in the audience that are writers, we have a very strong writing community in Seattle. Um, what is your writing discipline, and what terrifies you as, as your as What a terrifies writer? me? Yeah, what ter but also your writing discipline. That I can answer. I am quite well suited to answer that. <laughs> um, my li writing life essentially consists of the following which is largely sitting in front of a computer and worrying. Uh, <laughs> that, I think, boils it down. Um, but I, if you want to know the rest of it, so I work from, uh, on a computer, and I have rented a office space that's probably smaller than the carpet on which we're sitting. Um, it has no views of anything. It's very Spartan. Uh, so because I need that isolation, I was talking about a bunker, but actually it turns out it's actually a real bunker. Um, um, and I, I work um, sort of very in a free-flowing manner in the sense that I don't outline my books. So in The Kite Runner, for instance, I kind of knew that the main character would go back to Afghanistan, and I kind of knew that some very difficult things would happen that somehow tied into his past, but I kind of had, really had no idea what. And so it was a matter of, so I just work, work my way forward and run into a blind alley. So I reverse and then try a different direction. And that probably explains why I've only written you know, three or four books in the last you know, 15, 16 years or whatever. Um, it would probably be a lot more efficient for me if I outlined. And I've tried outlining, but it just never works for me because I ditch it like on the second day. I just go off somewhere else. And I actually welcome that for those of you who want to be writers. For me, one of the most wonderful experiences of writing a manuscript is when it gets away from you completely. In other words, when you are not in charge and you're not you know, the conductor directing, go here, do this, say that, sit here, stand there, run there, do this. But rather, when the characters slowly over time define themselves and speak for themselves and sort of, you know, in, in A Thousand Splendid Sons, I knew that at the end, one of those two women would, would commit an act of really heartbreaking sacrifice for the sake of the other. I just wasn't sure that it would be Mariam. Mm -hmm. But as I wrote it, and again, I hadn't outlined anything, I was just writing, and as I wrote it, and I got to know these women better and better, I saw that that's really that's the only way this book can, can really end is, is, is through this beautiful act, uh, that, uh, this gift that Mariam uh, gives Leila. So my writing process is 
is I try to work every day. Um, I, I don't get to work on the weekends often, but I do work Monday through Friday, and I kind of think of it as a, you kind of have to if you want to be a writer. You do have to think of it as a regular job. You have to, you know, punch in and punch out every day, you know, show up and keep writing, and then read. You have to read books. <laughs> you know, um, there's a famous scene in a, well, not a famous scene, but a scene that I really like in a movie called Quills about the Marquis de Sade, who's, you know, in France, and he's in prison, and he's reading all this pornographic stuff, and they've taken his pens from him, and they've put him in a cell, and he'll cut his hand, and he'll write with blood on the walls. And the priest that's sort of counseling him and says, why don't you, why don't you read something instead of writing once in a while? He goes, I, 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 I don't have time to read. I'm too busy writing. And he says, well, that's the mark of a true amateur, the writer who, pr who produces more than he reads. So I would suggest to all of you writers to also make sure you read a lot of, a lot of what you want to write. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to pick from some of uh, these questions. And here's one. Do you plan to write more books with female characters as main characters in your books? I like reading stories about women. <laughs> um, I know I'm, I'm writing about people. Um, um, I know the Thousand Splendid Sons was very unusual for me because it's a book with a sense of mission. Um, my books generally start almost accidentally. An image or an idea will come to my head. And The Mountains Echoed, for instance, began. The whole book was triggered by this weird idea that I had about these three characters and they're walking across this sort of mountainous landscape. And there's a man, he's pulling a little red wagon and there's a little girl sitting in it. And about 15, 20 paces behind them is a boy who's following. And that's kind of how it began. I really had no idea why this, who these people were. And I began exploring it. And it just kind of snowballed into this novel. But, and the Kite Runner really began because I, I was out of work. <laughs> I was watching this TV program in 99 about the Taliban. And this is before 9-11. It was before everybody knew who the Taliban were. But they were telling this story about the Taliban and all the really just kind of draconian restrictions that they were imposing on, inflicting on, on people, especially women. And somewhere along that storyline, it mentioned kite flying and how they had banned kite flying. And that kind of really chapped my hide because I grew up, you know, flying kites as with other boys. It's such a small, simple joy. And these children who've lived through war and, and all this violence, they had this little joy, and that was taken from them. So that really upset me. And I kind of stepped aside, and I went to my computer, and I cranked out this like 25-page story, a short story that became eventually the basis for the novel a couple of years later. Um, but A Thousand Spudding Sons is very different, because there I began in a very big idea, in that I really want to write a story about women in Afghanistan, because it's a topic that matters to me deeply. And I feel like it's one that's very relevant today. You know, uh, Seattle Rep is staging A Thousand Spudding Sons. Um, I've seen the production in San Francisco. It's really beautiful, and everybody here, I would advise you to go see it. You'll be, you'll be moved, you'll be traumatized, you'll laugh. It's really an experience. Um, but that book began because I really wanted to tell the story, the story of women. So I don't foresee that I'll do that again, and that deliberately. But you know, I write men, I write women. Uh, so. I don't have any plans to write a book specifically about women, but um, I'm working on a novel now, which I've been working with on, on a, a couple of years now, 
and and there are a number of you know like prominent female characters in it. That's great to hear. Thank you. Um, and this question is for Razia. How do you engage the Taliban government and others to support girls being educated? Can you be specific? Well, I, I don't deal with Taliban. I don't deal with the government. Um, I deal with these villages that are conservative, but they were Mujahideen who fought the Taliban. So uh, my reach is really not to Taliban um, or the government. They are not involved, but um, they appreciate what I'm doing, and uh, they recognize us. And uh, they are very proud of we are number one school in, of private school, which is free, 100% free. Um, I think uh, they like to work with us if we need to, uh, but uh, I'm not under anybody's control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Thank you. So. Thank you. Um, and this is, I think both of you can answer this, even though it's, uh, it's uh, posed to you, Razia Jan. I think it is wonderful that you do a lot uh, of work to educate girls, but I think that the uh, proper and sensible education of boys is equally important to secure a future that is fair and respectful for women. Um, so what do you say about that and what do you say about you know, masculinity and young boyhood and how we may engage with young men because we're definitely seeing a crisis, I mean definitely in America and I think in other parts of the world But too. you know that boys are boys and, um, and they are privileged. Mm -hmm in any family. So they have no trouble getting education. Mm -hmm. I didn't, in those villages, uh, those boys are getting education. Oh, I, I think what they're saying is that to re-educate them in uh, being better, better boys or better men. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a history here if you see that when you educate a boy, you educate a boy. Mm. But when you educate a girl, you educate the whole family. Mm -hmm. So that girl is going to educate the brother, and, and, and so and so forth. Mm -hmm. I think that is my point, I and that it. has been working. Yeah. Uh, for brothers to stand up for their sisters, which they never could do. And now they are the ones who are, uh, want their sisters to get better education and do better. Mm -hmm. I think um, because the men were always privileged, and they were given all the rights in the world. But the women are the ones who are not. So I think what we are doing is that we are really educating the whole family. Family, yes. right. Yeah, thank you. Khaled? No, I, I, I think whoever asked that question is, is spot on, actually, because um, unless, uh, and, uh, you know, we need a cultural shift in Afghanistan because all the problems that you are facing with those villages, yeah. and uh, is, it stems out of this long-standing patriarchal uh, ethos that's been in Afghanistan far, way, way before the Taliban ever came into power, and that people somehow have the impression that the Taliban imported this ideology into Afghanistan and imposed it on the country, but it's not true. You know, even when I was growing up in Afghanistan in the 70s, we had these problems. So this is a very ancient, but we, and so we need cultural shift. And we do need a re-education of our boys in Afghanistan. 
Um, and I think it's, maybe I'm optimistic, but I think it's slowly happening. Part of what we're witnessing in Afghanistan is that it's becoming, it's traditionally a very agricultural and rural country. It used to be that 85% of people lived in the villages. But it's becoming an increasingly urban country. As you see, the population of Kabul is exploding. Yeah. And as resources are limited, and as people are leaving the rural areas and coming to cities, um, slowly they're sort of adapting or, or adopting a sort of a more urban uh, you know, viewpoint. And especially in the urban areas in Afghanistan, what you see is the young people, and Afghanistan is a very young nation. And the young people are so engaged with the outside world through Facebook, through social media, through technology. And they're exposed to these ideas. It's not news to them, women's rights, or climate change, or caring about social justice, and so on. These are things that they're really interested in. What has frustrated their hopes and desires is the fact that the government is terribly um, you know, um, embattled and unpopular, and security is a serious issue. It's frustrating the hopes of so many people. So I think if given the space and the time, gradually that cultural shift would happen. But these things are really slow, and they're painstaking. It may happen in my lifetime. It may not. But I think hopefully that one day we will see that so that when you start a school in Afghanistan, you won't have to bulldoze a man and plant a flag. But, you know, uh, there might be a partner in the endeavor with you. Lovely. Thank you. Do we have enough time for another couple of questions? Who is our time person? I think we'll just keep going until. Uh, um, this question, uh, this person asks, though I know everything is complex, on the whole, do you agree that US involvement in Afghanistan has been terrible for the people of your country? Who's supposed to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> the Americans? Both of you. <laughs> well, I think, I think um, unfortunately, um, uh, we, there is no success what we've done. We've spent so much money, so much human lives have been um, really lost. Um, and uh, I think uh, now also we are there, but we are not really up front at all. And we are trying to train, um, you know, the police and the military, and you don't see anybody, uh, you know, uh, in a Humvee or anything, and, and surprisingly, I don't know if you know, um, nobody higher like the ministers or the president or from the embassies, nobody drives. They all have helicopters, mm -hmm. and six helicopters going this way and six helicopters coming this way. They do not use any, any vehicles anymore. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah you can see the difference that how dangerous it is for them to really communicate with them. So it's a hard question. The heart was in the right place, mm -hmm. but we used the money in a wrong way, and we don't see any results. And I don't think so that it's any use for using any more money in a way that, that because the people who were corrupt, they became millionaires and they left the country, and they are, you know, doing well, very well. But the people of Afghanistan, they are not. 
I, I have, I share some of what Razajan is saying, although um, I, I do think that there's, it's, it's, for me it's a little bit diff, a little bit more complicated in the sense that I think Afghans have a um, complicated relationship with the American presence. On the one hand, if you go to Afghanistan and you ask people should the Americans leave, um, the worry for many Afghans is that should the Americans leave, the country's gonna slide back into those days where you have militia groups fighting one another with complete impunity and, and the civilians will be crossed, caught in the middle once more and you'll have once again a massive outflow of people, you know, exactly what we saw in the mid 90s. And that fear, whether that would actually play out or not, is at least understandable, I think. Uh, and that's very real in the minds of a lot of Afghans. Uh, I, I do agree with Raza John in the sense that, you know, after 17 years, uh, you know, we are at a place where the government is still dysfunctional, uh, where security is quite bad in many parts of the country, where almost a third of the country is being controlled by the Taliban. But I do also think that it has not been a, a total waste of, of time and resources because there have been you know, tangible and undeniable improvements in Afghanistan. If you looked at Afghanistan before the American campaign in 2001, there were only less than a million kids in school. Today, over nine million kids are in school and 35% of them are girls. You know, 2,000 schools since 2001 have been rebuilt or repaired. Thousands of kilometers of roads have been built. If you look at the health sector, you know, under the age of five mortality, infant mortality, maternal mortality have all experienced dramatic improvements. The life expectancy for men and women 10 years ago was 47 and 50. Now it's 62 and 64. Literacy rates are improving. 12 million Afghans have access to cell phones. Almost 80% have access to some form of healthcare. So these are undeniable, and you know, they are all of these good things that I mentioned are come with yes, but, yes, but, and all of that is true. But I do think there have been improvements, and, 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 and I hope that some of those changes, or positive changes in Afghanistan, can now be treated as red lines. And I include women's rights among that, very importantly. The Afghan constitution guarantees that 27% of the seats in the lower half of the parliament must be occupied by women. It's a surprisingly liberal thing. Um, and, and so I think that's a very important development. And so with Rajajan, I share the fear that as we are working painstakingly slowly five steps back and a couple of steps forward to this peace negotiation that may happen at, at some point, and as, as unappealing as it may be to sit across from the Taliban, you can't have forever war. The Afghan people, it's 40 years, they're tired, they're exhausted. You know, 10,000 Afghans were killed last year by war, largely at the hands of insurgent groups. You can't have that go on forever. At some point, you need a peace process, but in that process, the rights of women and the advances that they have been made in pockets, mm -hmm. and it's a work in progress, and it's by no means what any of us here would want. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, those are really important because of the foundation for the future, and they can't be bargained away in, in, in the process of, an, of a peace negotiation, and, and, and that has to be treated as a red line. Mm, lovely, thank you. 
Um, I do have one last question for you, for you both, and we got the signal that we should be winding up. But uh, we've been talking about Afghanistan a lot, but you both and all, all three of us are Americans, and you've been here for decades. And so uh, I'll ask the Americans in you what, and a very quick response from both of you on what is your hope for America? Pass. Well, what is your hope for America? Oh, yeah, what do you answer that? <laughs> You are also. Yeah, that's in trouble. Well, <laughs> I was I was invited here as the interviewer. Uh, so. <laughs> I didn't see that question on the on the yeah. list of <laughs> of proposed topics. <laughs> I think as American, I think this is the best country in the world, and and we want it to be ever, and it has helped throughout the world. I think American people have golden heart, everyone. And that's what, you know, keeps this nation the top. And we want to keep it this way. Uh, because they always help other countries that are in need. And that is such a part of being in America, mm -hmm. you know. So that's my wish and hope, that we continue this effort and don't get lost. Thank you. Thank you. Look, I... No, I, I, I echo what you say, you know, and I, you know, I came to the States as a refugee um, because of the war in Afghanistan, and so I always talk about how I have a sense of kinship with people who've been displaced and uprooted and lost their homes and their communities, and that's very true. But I also have... Um, an association and a kinship with the political and moral leadership that the U.S. has brought around this issue traditionally. You know, uh, the American story has been about opening doors. It's been about reuniting families, including my own. It's about repairing those traumas. Um, you know, this country has been peerless in welcoming victims of forced this, you know, a forced migration. Um, and, and so, you know, as I see everything play out today, I keep in my mind this idea uh, of America that my father had, which was why he brought us here in the first place, uh, where we could live here as equals and have opportunity and be given a legitimate chance to make something of ourselves. And that, for me, it will always be that. And um, uh, anyway, so that I, when, when I talk about hope for the future of America, um, you know, I keep thinking about that, and, and I, I can't help but think that that's who we really, really are, and that's who we will always be. Thank you. So on behalf of uh, Seattle University and this whole city of Seattle and the wonderful crowd here, I'll thank you once again for being here and joining us. Thank you. Thank you.